The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 113 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus, along with my co-host, the chief information security officer of Siena, Andy Benello. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I remind our listeners you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out our recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Honestly, I thought last week's show was one of the best shows we've ever done here on Task Force 7 Radio. Um, It was just another fantastic week for the show. The CEO of Black Ops Partner Corporation, Casey Fleming, was on the show with us, and he was speaking truth to power in regards to how nation-state adversaries are rapidly evolving and scaling the frequency of their attacks on U.S. companies, as well as what the great power competition is and what it means for senior leaders in the information security industry, which was very interesting. Mr. Fleming also spoke specifically about China, which has been a a topic of discussion here in the last few episodes, and not only whether or not he thinks that China is an adversary to the United States, but whether or not China thinks the United States is their adversary. And that I can promise you uh, his answer was very interesting and it would definitely get your attention, right? So we unpack the current state of affairs between the United States and China, including what kind of threat they pose to the United States and their competitive economic strategy that details how they must live and we must die as a world power, which is some very, very interesting stuff, folks. Uh, especially if you're concerned at all about self-preservation and the preservation of freedoms that you now enjoy here in the United States. This is really stuff that you don't want to miss and you don't hear about often in the mainstream news media for some reason. I'm still trying to figure out why this isn't on TV almost every night, but we really broke it down in this episode, folks. We, like I said, we talked about the great power competition. We got into asymmetric hybrid warfare and what that is, and how it's being utilized today, and what that means to the United States. We talked about the gray zone. Uh, I know Admiral Rogers talked about the gray zone a little bit. We hit the gray zone a lot, and how the U.S. needs to learn to operate in it. Uh, We talked about cybersecurity as a national security threat. And Fleming also talked about security strategy and how it integrates into our overall 
competitive strategy. And so it's interesting that how economic espionage has really damaged America's role as the world's lone superpower. And, and we, also, we also hit on the fact that China has been turning intellectual property uh, theft uh, into their competitive advantage and how if you have IP theft protection, you can have a competitive advantage on the global stage, right? Because even and out that playing field is important. And when the playing field's even and it's fair play, things tend to go in our favor for sure. So I thought it was one of the best episodes we ever did. So much so that I'm thinking about really focusing on this subject more in the future. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's episode yet, I really encourage you to do so. It's the kind of information that really turns some heads. People just don't realize how much their way of life is under attack because it's all done in the gray zone, folks. That's the CEO of Black Ops Partner, Mr. Black Ops Partner Corporation, Mr. Casey Fleming, on last week's episode. That's episode number 112 of Task Force 7 Radio. So if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage, and you can find all the TF7 Radio episodes at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is the most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And of course, we have our news section as well, where you can check out all the latest cybersecurity news and news on Task Force 7 Radio. You can write comments and stay in touch with other TF7 Radio listeners, so it's a lot of fun. We are on at least a dozen different playback mediums now, and we've made it super simple for you to find them all. Just hit the subscribe button at the top right of the homepage, and you'll see the entire selection of playback mediums. And most importantly, you can subscribe to the show right from the TF7 Radio website, which is always the best way to stay connected to the TF7 family. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. Well, tonight's a special evening in the sense that not only do we have one of the most foremost experts in the application security domain uh, here with us this evening, but we also have a dear friend of mine on the show with us as well. Application security expert Samir Sharif is going to be on the show with us tonight, folks. Samir is the global head of application security in a large multinational firm where he manages a portfolio of programs from digital identity, fraud and suspicious activity, secure development lifecycle, security architecture, all the way through to information security risk assessments. He has done over 20 years of experience starting as a developer at GE during the 90s and tech boom back then. Uh, a lot going on back then, especially in the development world, as well as working in program management, operations, and risk compliance functions before transitioning to information security. So he's got a great deal of experience working with information security as a business enabler and an enterprise risk function, and he is widely recognized as a change agent when it comes to managing cybersecurity functions to enable digital transformation, and I'll ask him about that as well. He brings a ton of international experience to the table, he was born in Ethiopia. He has lived in Africa, the Middle East, Europe, and Asia. He speaks multiple languages. And Mr. Sharif holds a BA and executive MBA from Xavier University's Williams College of Business. We're extremely lucky to have him here with us this evening. 
So I'm super excited to welcome application security expert and my friend and former colleague, Samir Sharif to the show. Samir, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, brother. Thank you for having me, George. It's great to be on the show. Hey, I'm really excited to have you on here. We're going to talk about stuff that we always talk about where we're sitting at the bar and we're having a conversation and, and we're just, uh, you know, chatting on what's going on in the industry, but we're going to do it on the radio tonight so everybody can hear it. So it's going to be, it's going to be very cool. So Samir, let's, let's just do some benchmarking right out of the gate. What's going on in the AppSec world today? AppSec world, uh, George, is, is going through an interesting transformation, um, one that I call more of a ramp up. So if you think about you know, several years ago when we first started the entire AppSec, you know, from a community standpoint, you know, what are we doing in terms of building in security, shifting left, um, embedding some controls and testing and tooling? Today, everything is happening so fast. You know, DevOps, when you think about cloud, and even in the future with AI taking a lot of you know, front-facing um, implementations uh, from an automation standpoint, AppSec still is running through kind of a gate phase type of an approach for testing and ensuring the right controls, the right you know, gaps are addressed, bugs fixed. But today, everything's moving so fast. Technology teams are developing, deploying really, really fast. So the transformation is really just us being able to catch up with the realities on the ground, which is faster deployment. How do we change and change our culture to adapt to that model? And that's what's becoming really interesting. You know, it's interesting no matter when we talk about inform information security or no matter what domain we are talking about, it seems that speed is always at the forefront of the conversation. I, I believe that application security is one of the most important domains of cybersecurity. And it can also be one of the most misunderstood at times, I think. So why should our listeners really care about application security? I think they really should care more now more than ever for, for two reasons. Um, one, we can no longer be purely prescriptive and embedded in terms of a service offering, right? Um, and the importance also comes in the fact that we, we have to get this into the mindsets of the development community in a normal cycle base, meaning as they develop, as they think about design changes, as they think about new uh, implementations and convergence of various platforms as they look at, especially in the space of cloud, it's, it's becoming more and more important that application security becomes basically second nature, right? This can't be an afterthought anymore. Um, and they really should care more than ever because now with the speed of deployments, like we said earlier, we can't just wait to address these gaps. They have to be known maybe even from right in the beginning, looking at how effectively these particular connectivity points and the technology platforms are integrated from a design standpoint needs to be considered even early. So AppSec is definitely going to be the most important domain in cybersecurity and probably more so in the future. So Samir, is it, is it a process issue or are we, are we not investing enough in application security? I think, I think it's more of, um, honestly, culture change. So there is investment. Um, there's plenty of process. The process itself 
can't be just purely you know waterfall waterfall based type of development method, right? So it can be well, we're going to gate you throughout your life cycle to do a certain type of review, right? It's going to have to be more integrated, meaning the people who just purely never thought about worrying about security defects or, or, or bugs now have to think about it as they are in the process of creating these technologies, right? And not rely on the, the, you know, the, the, the team that comes in towards later in the life cycle to really you know, raise their hand and say, excuse me, you, you can't deploy this because we found a critical issue or a critical bug. Um, it, it needs to be integrated in through the life cycle. So the processes are critical to address how to really shift the, the mindset of those technology teams to think about security as they are you know, continually looking at the lifecycle changes. Yeah, I don't think there's any leading from behind in the application security domain. Uh, you got to get it right up front, and I think you got to be on top of it right on front street. So I think, you know, if you want to get application security right, like we're discussing, it requires a great deal of influence, and it's a lot of soft skills coming from executives, the influence and persuasion, negotiation skills from information security executives, and then they have to have a great deal of buy-in from business leaders that are in the lines of business to actually get this done. And we're talking about culture and convergence here. How important is it and how hard is it to sway the masses in the lines of business? It's always been hard, George. I think it's becoming, it's harder now because we're playing catch up. And the reason I say that is because we are moving to the cloud. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, uh, you know, particularly emerging industries like the healthcare innovations that we're seeing, the security mindset and the change that's going to have to come with it is, is pretty significant. Right? So the, the convergence and the, and the change from a culture standpoint really is no longer the top-down approach, meaning in the past, it was easier just to go to your CIOs and technology heads and tell them, well, these are the critical issues that we're seeing and this is how we need to fix it going forward so it doesn't happen again versus today. They don't have that time, right? So if they are looking at using microservices or third-party platform or other connectivity and APIs, the consideration for the security has to be pretty much built in into their mindset. Yeah, but shouldn't this be getting better and not worse? I mean, shouldn't we be, you know, you just mentioned that we're playing catch up now probably more than ever. Right. And, you know, is it, are, are, are there not enough sec or DevSecOps evangelists out there, you know, preaching, you know, how important application security is to your business and, you know, and, and how we should be mitigating this material risk that everybody has. Why is it that we're playing catch up still now and things are getting worse rather than better? We're playing catch up for two reasons. One is really skill sets, right? So I used to be a developer many, many years ago. Um, and the primary driver for technology teams even today is really delivering functionality, delivering it so it works well and it works you know, to meet the business needs and they do it as quickly as possible. Security and security defects were not in the mindsets of developers, right? Back then and probably even more so today because, and we'll talk about this more in a few minutes, but, you know, think about how everything is connected. And, you know, if you think about a developer from 20 years ago versus today or even 10 years ago, 
you're not writing much anymore in terms of pure code, as opposed to just you leveraging the building blocks of existing technologies. Right, like putting it all together. Right, yeah. right. So the security part of it really is interesting because now, because they're, the, the pressure of developing and releasing so quickly, and the fact that you know, the, the afterthought culture change that we mentioned needs to be baked in, it really is more about the developer themselves understanding what security really is and what it means and why they should care. You know, I've known you for a long time. And we're great friends. We're, we're former colleagues. We go bouncing together sometimes and we have a great time. But I've never asked you, what motivates you to do this type of stuff? I mean, this can be kind of sophisticated stuff. And it's very complex at times. Um, you know, obviously it's very important. But what gets you up in the morning to do this day in and day out? That's an excellent question, George. And uh, a good observation. But I'll be honest with you. What really motivates me more than anything is today – I think information security professionals, especially in the AppSec space, we are becoming more and more business enablers, right? Supporting the digital you know, changes and revolution that's happening. Coming back and saying, well, let's stop for a minute, right? Yes, that we have all these controls and all these types of testing that has to happen. But at the end of the day, understanding the business and really supporting them to innovate is where I think we're beginning to, to play in, in, in the space. And it's exciting because with all the change in automation, we are actually getting a seat at the table now to have those conversations. And that's really what motivates me more than anything. All right, folks, we've got to transition to commercial break, but stick with us. We've got lots more to come here on this episode of Task Force 7 Radio. In the second segment, we're going to talk about how application security is essential to the national security of the United States. And so we're going to get into that discussion. So if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. So we're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with application security expert, Samir Sharif. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. 
By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S I N E T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, application security expert, Samir Sharif. So, Samir, you know, there are many companies out there struggling with digital transformation. And this is something that our good friend William Beer speaks about all the time, speaks very intelligently about. And I know you know William very well. Right. And even more perplexing to some people is how information security can help drive digital transformation. So, you know this like, you know this space like no other person. And so, does the digital revolution have an empirical impact on application security. Absolutely, George, absolutely. And yes, and William and I have had many debates over what's, gonna, what's the future gonna really look like with digital and application security as a practice. 
And so just let's step back for a minute and kind of think about what's happening in this whole transformation space. Our users, right, including yourself and myself, we rely on these on platforms and technologies, especially mobile, to interact. And the way we do it is through authentication, right? Um, and some of these authentication methods are not easy. You, you know, the step up, the challenge responses, you have to remember what the challenge response questions you put in and responses that you have to provide back to the company they're interacting with. And most of the time you forget. So it's painful. The entire client experience is not good. Businesses have realized that. And they know they have to change in terms of how you step up so you can allow for higher risk transactions. Maybe you want to order through Amazon. Maybe you want to transact with a bank and, and do some high risk transactions and so on. And, and the revolution or the transformation really is all about making things seamless, but in a secure manner, right? So it, 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 many of the conversations that I have with the business and even the security practitioners, it's, it's a question of what's good enough, right? How do we enable the transformation so the businesses can allow for some of those types of transactions where we know from an application security standpoint has gone through the rigor and we can be sure that it's not easy for the adversaries to go after it, right? So yes, it's a combination of authentication, identity management, but from an application security standpoint, it's also fraud management, right? So how do we ensure through these digital revolution, we can actually elevate application security away from just purely the testing and control by sending culture to more of enablement. So we can systemically give the businesses visibility into what's, hap what's happening from a fraud standpoint, what's, what's, what's happening from a transactional standpoint, what's happening from the identity standpoint of where the customers are. There's a lot of information you can get off the phone, for example. You know from a telemetry where they are, the behaviors, you know, in terms of I log in uh, every five days to look at my account in you know, the California area or the LA or whatever it may be, right? And there are some anomalous you know, changes in behavior and how you interact with a particular business or, or, uh, or technology. The, the, the transformation really is moving into application security because now application security becomes much more of a, an automated way to look at all these risk space and provide real-time data back to the businesses that they can respond to from a fraud standpoint, from threat detection standpoint. <clears throat> so it is, it, it's exciting. It's exciting for us to actually be working with the digital teams to think about the future evolution and in an automated manner, have a much more secure um, interaction with, with customers. I think this is a very important and interesting conversation in the respect that I don't think when a lot of people think about application security, they think about fraud management and threat detection. I just don't think that pops up to their head. And like you said, it just has to be a lot more than just testing. And so I want to get into this a little bit more with you right now about, you know, I'm going to get into about the testing and how that works and fraud management, authentication, and encryption. But I also want to talk about talent a little bit before I get there because since we're having this empirical conversation, there, there, there's a lot of chatter about talent in the information security space, and we're always giving the, the, the talent war uh, subject its due here on the show. So 
in your opinion, what is the status of talent and acquiring talent in the application security space? It's getting tougher and tougher, George. Um, and traditionally, it was it was the 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 analyst or the engineer, you know, that we train for security, and they become experts in the tool, experts in looking at maybe code and doing some sort of testing against the code. But today, the the, the challenge with the talent is twofold. One, the skill sets are not there in the industry. These are meaning the, the pure engineering skill sets, right? Most of them are developers that we bring in, maybe we contract, um, but your traditional security practitioner today, which are mostly an analyst-based types of uh, engineers or practitioners, may not have the business experience, right? They may not have been on the business side understanding right. or what is the transformation that's happening. And they may not, even more importantly, from my, in my opinion, may not even have the spatial thinking. Right. So if you think about kind of the artistic background, right, um, dealing with ambiguity and being creative and thinking through, um, you know, with, with different changes that are happening, even with the AI and blockchain today, these are much more difficult to find talent because not only they should, they need to be engineers, but they also need to be very creative. Um, and, and that's what we need in the, in the security space, especially in the application security and the talent is just not there. So, so do you think you need ahead, the, well, yeah, sorry. You also need like the soft skills, right? If you're going to start driving the transformation, you play such a critical role there. I and mean, is that where where is this? You know, the application security engineers, like where do they fit in the in the spectrum of soft skills right now? They they fit in on in two different fronts, right? The the traditional security team, where you're leveraged more as an expert in a particular type of a platform or code. So, for example, C-sharp or .NET or Java. Uh, the, the, the strongest, your strongest engineers are clearly where they can very well evolve into some of the best security practitioners. But the soft skill comes in as well with the, all the interaction that needs to happen between the, the business organization, the, uh, the analysts, the product managers, all the way down to the actual development functions where a lot of the work is just moving really, really fast. So it's, it's a soft skill to make sure that we have an ability where we can actually engage very closely with, with this team and ensure that they understand the various design touch points, the testing touch points, but more importantly, even the, the, you know, the pre-release uh, mindsets and review that needs to happen in terms of the convergence of the, of the code to other platforms outside of what they probably even looked at or even understand. So look, I want to start diving into what I'm, I'm really excited to talk about. And this is what I really wanted to, to get to in, in this episode. Um, and, and it's really the fact that many Fortune 500 companies are coding applications and building platforms using developers located in countries that we, as the United States and, and many other Western nations, from a national security perspective, may consider to be an adversary, an adversarial nation. And so, how do we trust the code that's being built in these places, and how do we balance things like the cost of building the platforms and the quality that we need because we need the talent? We just talked about talent to sort of, you know, preface this conversation uh, about, you know, what we're, what we're going to do about this risk. And then, how do we balance that against 
security and privacy concerns and, and all those types of things. So you have this national security versus uh, sort of a financial right. like, uh, advantage. Good question, George. And um, so, uh, I mean, just to preface it, right? So we're, application security is not going to solve everything. It's not going to solve world, world hunger, right? I'll give you a perfect example. So you go, let's say you're sick and you go to your pharmacist and get a drug. From a supply chain standpoint, most people don't look at the back of it to see where it was actually made, right? Even more so, they won't even think about where is the, the, the components of that particular drug coming from, right? And it's, it's become so global. And, and the same thing in the technology space, we're so global in terms of every single piece of code that actually sits in particular technology, majority of it, and I mean that, majority of it is not developed internally. It comes from somewhere else, right? So we call this an industry open source. Um, and from a building block, which is really how most technologies are being developed today. Those building block codes come from third parties. They, they come from open source libraries. They come from other countries. They may be ones that were developed within the firm that just are passed around and others acquired, maybe connected through APIs. The supply chain is really complex. In the same manner, it's a question of trust, right? So if you can't trust the supply chain, with the right tools to at least have visibility into the risk space of how risky it is, maybe it has certain types of defects, then, then we're, we're in a big herd of trouble, right? So that's the, the key part is recognizing that every technology that we really rely on today has a significant amount of other code developed somewhere else, most of the time outside of the country. So let's talk about that for a second. I want to sort of unpack this, right? So earlier in April of this year, the Institute for Infrastructure Technology released an article titled Software Security is National Security. And it was the name of a white paper they did on how software security affects the national security of the United States. And they started off by saying this. They said that software development that does not incorporate comprehensive security throughout the life cycle of the application jeopardizes national security by increasing the threat landscape surrounding high value networks and sensitive data. So unfortunately, many of today's technology manufacturers prioritize speed to market over security and they've adopted a deploy now patch later culture and they shift the liability of their vulnerable technology into consumers through EULAs and SLAs and so forth. Right. This situation is very akin to managing third-party risk in my, in my mind, but there, there is no third-party here. These, these people actually work for the firm directly. So do you think business executives really understand the risk that they're taking on? And if they do, do you think they really care about the larger national security concern or is it just all about the quarterly profits? Great question, George. And I can tell you in my experience, they care today more than ever. And when we talked about the, the open source concerns and risks uh, in your prior question, it's, and I mentioned trust, right? But it's really trust and verify. So from a national security standpoint, even you know, regardless of what industry we're in, 
the, the the area that really is the most critical in ensuring our executives understand and, and really not just purely rely on the, the, the ELAs and the SLAs is really to manage the, the, the entire life cycle in terms of the acquisition of the solution, whether it's partly developed internally or externally. But the, the, the key part is the risk management. So risk management, as, as a practice itself, is really becoming more involved in the AppSec space today because we're not going to fix everything, right? You're not going to build fortresses for every single technology that you, you create and deploy, but it's about managing risk. So how risky is that particular technology or code or functionality that a particular line of business is interested in versus how secure you want to make it? So it's a balance between understanding the what and how and what does it mean from a privacy risk standpoint if adversaries or some other leakages occur in the data, for example. And it's a balance of how much you want to test, right? I mean, you're not going to be, you know, exercising five times a day to be healthy, right? You're taking a risk. You're taking a decision about your own life in the same way we do take, make decisions about the technologies themselves in terms of what's the life cycle of that technology and how much I, want, I need to be able to ensure that it's 100% bulletproof. And it's never going to be 100% bulletproof. You know, the entire risk space is, is evolving. What may be 100% bulletproof today that you think it is, could easily be hacked, you know, five, 10 years from now. So it's a tough balance between risk management and the, the appetite from the business uh, to allow certain activities and certain rigor uh, to play in, in, into the development process. Yeah, I think it can be a very chaotic atmosphere. So even if you're mitigating this risk internally, what are your partners doing about it? And then it turns into it, and then it really turns into a third and fourth party risk discussion after Correct. that. And it just almost seems like an endless risk management uh, dialogue that's going on. And, and it's, it could get really, really complex. But certainly, one of the most severe material risk that every firm is dealing with these days is their ability to execute their patching efforts in an efficient and effective manner. And we, we hear about it all the time. And a lot of times you can see some of the largest and most prolific breaches in the world come back to a, a company's inability or inefficiency in patching their networks. So I want to talk about a few things here and I want to throw a few things out and then uh, we'll get to them. And if you know, I need to go back and repeat some of this stuff, I certainly will because there's a lot I want to talk about around patching. And it seems to me that IS executives have in some ways failed to persuade the business executives to join the effort in mitigating this risk. And I've seen this throughout my career and I think it's an it's a, it's a, uh, ongoing problem. Number two, I think the patching operation always seems to be run by a technologist, right? And then it's, ne it's never run by an operations executive who really understands that these exercises are more of a business function than a technology function. And I've been trying to preach that through my whole career and I've been really uh, not very successful and, <laughs> and getting people to listen to me. Maybe I'm wrong, right? So, and then number three, the person in charge of patching never seems to have any authority over the lines of business personnel where they could really impose their will on the people who are just more concerned with not interrupting their employees' workday than mitigating a very serious material risk with potentially catastrophic consequences, right? So what say you about this entire process? It's really, it's an interesting gap. Right, and one that I think, from infrastructure defense standpoint, it's it's been very 
much of a hot topic, especially the, the past few years, because of the, the nature of complexity and the and number of different components that are running in, in the entire you know, life cycle of technologies, but also in the infrastructure they, they're running on. But today, as you know, George, we're moving to the cloud, right? Every industry is moving to the cloud. So in, in many ways, I think it's going to help us solve this issue better than we probably could have ever have in the past. And the reason I say that is, number one, there is the commonality and the systemic ability to actually manage infrastructure through code, which is the beauty of the cloud, right? So I think in the long run, this may not be the biggest pain point, but certainly in some of the industries that are still running in their own data centers and their own technology platforms that they physically manage as well as physically deploy technologies to will have to address. And you're absolutely right. It's, you know, the operations teams are the ones that really need to be at the forefront of this. So how come, unless, how come uh, we don't see that happening more and more? I mean, we, every time I see it, it's, it's always a, a technologist, an engineer that's running these patching operations. And it really should be an operations executive that has this sort of far sweeping umbrella of authority to make things happen and also execute in a proper way. He'll understands process improvement and things like that, right? So why, why, why don't we see in that? It's just commonsensical to me. I mean, we just keep making the same mistake over and over again. You get the wrong people. In the I'll, I'll be honest with you, George. It's hard, <laughs> right? It's hard. <laughs> Anything difficult is not easily done. Um, I think, you know, depending on your size of our organization, you can build and much more effective operational functions, right, versus if you're mid-size or a small company. Um, but the commonality in, 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 the, in the future platforms and with cloud and especially with APIs, we will make this a much easier problem to address and, and solve for. Uh, but certainly, it, it is, it is going to be with us for a long time to come. Samir, so, if, if you don't make the move to the cloud securely, right up front, aren't you just kind of setting yourself up for the same deal that you're in right now? Right? If you don't make that right out of the gate, do it right? Yes, you um, absolutely. And the cloud makes things very easy for you to manage and secure, but also makes it very easy for you to be very quickly insecure, um, right? So no, Andy, I totally agree with you. Um, it's critically important to make sure the right guardrails, the right control, the right requirements, the right access rights for various teams to have or not have access to, to parts of cloud, especially for platforms and the software, you know, the services uh, portions are going to be very important. And, and you know, I would not make a jump to cloud without making sure that those specific types of rules and requirements in terms of, you know, through the life cycle, what are the key activities and controls that need to be well-designed as part of the implementation to cloud is going to be critical. So Samir, I recently attended a dinner last week at this private club in New York City with some very senior and respected information security and technology professionals. And one of the topics of discussion that came up was the reality that some of the best technologies now available to Fortune 500 companies are no longer built in the United States. And the technology executives are now confronted with a decision on whether to use technologies they don't fully trust 
or use technology they do trust, but does not give them the competitive advantage that they're striving for. So what are your thoughts around that? Excellent question, George. Um, if we go back to the, the culture and, and the trust conversation, right? Um, and even technology from a bare bones standpoint, your best engineers today are ones that actually know from a design standpoint where they can get a particular piece of functionality from that's been previously tested, secured. And in many ways, what I'm talking about is your, your reference, right? Your, your open your, your libraries that are available to you that's been used and, and verified. Um, and yes, they are building blocks, right? So code is more like a Lego, right? You're not writing new functionality anymore. In the 90s, you may have. It may have taken you weeks to figure out a particular business functionality because the, you know, the, the, the product owner wanted to do something unique with the technology that just the functionality didn't exist. Today, pretty much everything exists in the marketplace. All you have to do is find it, embed it in your code, and use it, and there you go. You've got you know, a very effective, well-designed product that works you know, as expected. However, it's not just about how good the code is. It's about where it's coming from, right? Um, so a lot of us in the industry know or have certain amounts of control around libraries right, where we can go in and, and you know, pull the piece of code that we need to do particular functionality. The conversation that we haven't had yet, but we really should, is where is that coming from, right? If it's being developed out of one of those adversaries, they may use them maliciously in the future, right? So it may pass all the security tests and controls today, but that's the trust factor that needs to be thought through as we continue to, to evolve and adopt a lot of these uh, components as part of our building block to deploy new technologies. So I think nation state is, is a risk. Um, and it's important to stay on top of it. But more importantly, I think having the right libraries with the right reusable code and reference architecture is going to be even more important from a design standpoint. As so you from remember, a, so from a design yeah. standpoint, you're saying we can get around that risk. We, don't we can to. get we can get around that risk if we have if we consider. So if we step back and say, you know, we need to rely. Let's say we need to rely a lot less on testing. We really should rely a lot more on design. Right, the right design, right up front. Proven secure code that's accessible. Proven secure code that's accessible, but also proven methods of you know, leveraging those codes, building those codes together, configuring them the right way, testing them, and then finally ensuring that all the security elements are, have been addressed. Now, if they've already been tested in the past, then clearly you're gonna pass through the gates with flying colors. But it's very hard to design correctly. But once done and repeatable, it makes everybody's life a lot easier. Samir, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors. But don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from application security expert, Samir Sharif. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Synet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, application security expert, Samir Sharif. So, Samir, we were mentioning in the, in the previous two segments, we were talking about testing a few times and everybody always thinks about testing and it would be, well, I would be remiss if I didn't mention testing at least or, or talk about it in this, uh, this interview about uh, application security. So, there's all kinds of testing that goes on in application security. 
I think AS professionals are always testing, it seems like to me. And then there's, there's static, there's dynamic, there's interactive and even mobile testing. Can you comment on the difference between uh, some of these tests and then their importance in the SSDLC process? Absolutely. And yes, so we are, we, there's, there's never enough testing. Um, and I'll add it, add by saying there's also never enough design. Um, testing for application security traditionally, right? So think of code, just like you're writing in, in a Word document. We do the static testing, right? So whether it's COBOL.net or Java, there are series of tools out there in the industry to help you test at the code level and do it fairly well. The challenge is it's not always 100% accurate, right? It's accurate in terms of telling you, you may have an area of risk here in this particular line. You know, just like you're, you're running your spell checker in Microsoft Word or some other you know, document tool. But the grammar may be flagged. It could actually be perfectly fine, right? That's what we call false positive. So a lot of these tools spit out false positives. The interesting part, George, is that the number of false positives you get is, is so high that most de development teams, developers and engineers, they just scream at it when they see it, right? It just makes no sense to them, It'll, you know? And then you get into this battle of, well, we need to validate it. Well, we need to assess it against the entire code base and, it's a cycle. It's a tough cycle to do a static analysis, but there are some great tools out there that are coming in and closing some of this false positive gap, right? So it's an evolving space and will continue to evolve, but it's an important part of the whole testing lifecycle. The second one that's also interesting and, and leveraged quite heavily across the old industries is really dynamic. So purely meaning when something is running, Right, so you want to interface with it. So if you're on your browser, you log into your utility website, and you, you'll see on, on, on the URL line, you know, codes, maybe you will, you'll be able to read at, at times what it's actually trying to do. It will embed, you know, user ID, X, and so forth. You're interacting with the technology. Then there are testing tools that interact with it to look for vulnerability. Can you actually fudge the URL and do something else with it, right? So there is the concept of cross-site scripting or injecting, you know, and, you know, through the SQL backend databases, we call it SQL injection. But there are other types of um, uh, dynamic errors that you can find through these tools, like, you know, path traversal and so on. I mean, all you have to do is really look at the, the OWASP top 10, and you'll see the top 10 major types of dynamic errors that the tools will catch, right? And some of them do it extremely well. And from a mobile standpoint, there are specific mobile environmental types of tools that test, you know, the, the functionality of the technology against the mobile app, um, and all the way down to the infrastructure and how it's connected. So there's all types of testing tools out there, and it really creates a complexity in most of teams outside of the security and development space question, you know, how can we, we need so many tools to test the, the platform? And I tell them, well, when you go see the doctor, don't you need an x-ray? <laughs> you need a blood test? It, it's, it's the same concept. It's complex, and we have to look at 
the risk space along all those layers of, of the technology to ensure that there isn't a security hole or a gap. So the process is all encompassing. Absolutely. It seems to me like, you know, of course we have the testing, then we have all the, you know, the, the code libraries that you spoke about before. You have all these other things that go into the process. What does a complete suite of application security tools really look like? The complete suite really look like always shifting left, right? You've got tools that help you look at the design to ensure that, you know, from a threat modeling standpoint that I'm connecting to this particular database, I'm interacting with, you know, five and six other APIs and how securely am I connected to them? And you could do design reviews and that's testing as well. All the way to the right, when you're doing the dynamic testing at the interactive level, right? And the suites are complex because it depends on the technology. If you're in a .NET space, you'll use a different suite of technology to test. If you're in mainframe, you will use a different suite of technologies to test. Um, so there isn't really one glove that fits all, which makes application security even more important to me, you know, from a business standpoint, to make sure that we, we're invested well and also understand the risk space well enough that we're leveraging the right tools in the right way at the right place. So you mentioned earlier in a previous segment about how application security is closely related to fraud management. And I want, I said to everyone that I was going to get to this question. And I think now's the time to ask because we have uh, some built basic building blocks on the conversation to, uh, to relate to what we're going to talk about. So how closely related are encryption and authentication technologies and, and fraud management and suspicious activity detection how closely related are they to secure systems development lifecycle? They're very closely related. Um, in a traditional application security standpoint, where we are purely looking at design and testing, it's the validation that those particular encryption tools are being used well. They're not you know, allowing the transfer of data in an, in, in an unencrypted manner between certain connectivity points that are maybe exposed externally, the data itself is encrypted. Um, and it's a validation point, but it's also important from the life cycle of the interaction, if it's a customer-based technology, that you have the right authentication to begin with, right? Um, and it's combined as part of the overall picture of you're authenticating right, you're getting authorized correctly, and all the interactions are encrypted correctly. So application security plays an important role to test and validate that those are happening throughout the key risk parts of the technology as users interact with it. Um, but it's also important, as you mentioned, from a fraud standpoint, because if there is you know, any part of that platform that gets circumvented in live production environment, for example, the visibility application security can provide into that risk is important from a fraud management, right? Um, even especially if you have security operations centers that are you know, leveraging your data points to do an investigation or have an alert, having the right tools through the AppSec um, space is important to close some of those gaps and enable the business to have you know, immediate visibility and awareness into you know, risk before significant fraud occurs. Yeah, I think this type of thing, like you know, the cryptography and some of these other, so some of these other technologies are, are gonna catch the eye of some of the people that are listening out there and say, hey, look, you know, this is what I'm really interested in. This is really kind of cool stuff. And they might attract new talent to the ASM space, right? Because right. people really like to, you know, this is where the, sort of the cool kids hang out. 
I think in, in, in cybersecurity, but look, I can't, I can't end this conversation without asking about BSIM. Um, you know, you, you're very familiar with BSIM. I know uh, for our audience, wh- what is BSIM and how important is it in me- as a measuring stick of right. risk to an organization? BSIM, um, just for the audience, so BSIM stands for Building Security and Maturity Model. So the moment you th- people hear the word maturity model, you're thinking of traditional maturity models. But when this was developed um, uh, with, with Sigital many years ago, and Gary was a forefront in this, as, as Gary was, I think he was on your show a few times as well. It was episode um, number 27. Right. So, <laughs> you know, so he wrote, he authored at least a dozen books, and he's a well-known you know, security practitioner. But it was a concept of, Building a prescript—I'm sorry—descriptive model in in maturity, right? So, meaning, yes, there are so many tools that I've talked about, right? In terms of, well, you know, you've asked me the question about what are the right set of tools for application security. The answer is it depends. But at the end of the day, we're talking about developments and technology, and all developers develop, right? And I, I, I love Gary's analogy when he said, well, all monkeys eat bananas, right? Um, <laughs> so if one monkey peels a banana from the bottom up, should I even care? You know, what does that mean? So the BSIM model from a descriptive model standpoint gives, gives us an ability to just take a look and compare, maybe across industry, maybe across the world and say, well, how, how are these set of monkeys really doing their work? And they're, you know, they may be testing using different product in a certain way. And the question will be, why does it apply to me? So it helps us to really build an ability to, to get visibility into how the, the process happens across different teams. It could be leveraged internally, or you could be you know, measured against another firm or industry. But being disruptive just really gives you the visibility of how advanced maybe some organizations are compared to you, and maybe it doesn't even matter. So it raises a lot of those types of questions where I can basically leverage that and have a conversation with executives and say, these are the things that we're doing compared to others. Now, the big question is, do you care? Do we care? What does it mean to us? It helps drive that level of conversation where it's really more material than saying, well, you know, I need to mature into level X where it actually truly has no meaning, right? Other than just benchmarking. Samir, thanks so much for being on the show with us, man. I really appreciate it. We got to grab some Christmas cheer next week. If you're around, I'm going to be in the city. Thank you for having me on the show, George. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it, man. So look, it's time to go again, folks. But before we do, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.